I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. I am extremely honoured today to be joined by somebody who, as I have told you, yes, his books have barely left my side since I was an undergraduate, and um, I've, I, I adore your approach to art history. Um, Yash Elsner, who is Professor of Late Antiquity at the University of Oxford and the curator of this magnificent exhibition that we are sat in at the moment, Imagining the Divine at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Yash, it is an honour to talk to you. Tell me about the motivation for putting this exhibition together. Well, hello, Yanina. I'm <laughs> delighted to be uh, with you here. Um, well, we were a project of... Um, about uh, 10 people uh, between the British Museum and Oxford University. And the uh, aim was an academic uh, enterprise in in looking at the long late antiquity and the development of, that is the first millennium roughly, and the development of visual culture across, uh, in the world religions, across Eurasia. Uh And uh, so that was really an academic project and it explored a number of things, for example, the different approaches over the last 200 years to these different religions and to their um, visual cultures and to visual identities. But at the same time, um, with the great support of the Ashmolean Museum, we were able to mount a kind of synopsis of some of our findings as a, an exhibition. The thing that excites me so much about this exhibition is you are bringing together the major world religions, you are telling a story of syncretism, the way that these religions fed off each other in terms of the visual arts, and and you have got some absolute hits in this exhibition, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, we're, I'm very pleased, I'm, well I'm proud about a number of things, but I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to get some uh, superb, amazing objects, and what's more, objects, some of them are star pieces in their own right, in their own museums, but many of them are star pieces that people have never seen or have hardly seen that have been in basements. We mm. put an enormous amount of effort, actually, in uh, going into the basements of the V&A, of the National Museums in Scotland, British Museum, the Ashmolean, um, and also into the collections of some of the great libraries, Corpus uh. Christi College, Cambridge, the um, Bodleian Library, um, and uh, indeed the British Library and to borrow things that are rarely shown, um, but things that are well worth seeing. And so I'm very, I'm very proud of that, actually. It's so cleverly curated, and oh, well. the thing that I love about it is, I mean, you walk through, so just if I describe it a bit, but it is a sequence of, what, seven rooms, is it? Eight rooms? Um, well, it's, it's three major galleries, but split up into a number of rooms, about six or, yeah, six or seven rooms. Yeah, yeah and, and there's a different uh, theme in each of the rooms, but the, the flow of the ideas is wonderful, and you you're going right from classical antiquity at the door through the emergence of early Christianity and then exploring the other world faiths in relation to it. Is that right? So the aim was to try to show how no, none of the religions we now think of as the world religions came into being, as it were, spontaneously, like <laughs> Athena born out of the head of Zeus in exactly. all her armour. <laughs> but rather, they are the product of um, an environment 
of a long and ancient culture that uh, occupied that environment, or indeed a number of cultures, uh, in dialogue, in conflict, and that they come together using the materials that they um, borrow from those cultures or appropriate from those cultures. And what's more, they come together in such a way, uh, you use the word syncretism, but in, in ways that are about both differentiating themselves from the cultures out of which they come and of um, differentiating themselves from each other. So they make choices that are not like the choices of the ones nearby. Um, and they, as it were, cautiously and complicatedly rub up against each other sometimes in uh, experiences of encounter or generosity or um, uh, a mutual respect, sometimes in the, in the opposite, I mean, in, in terms of iconoclasm or resistance or outright rejection of propositions. But all those, that, that range of responses are one, one game in which each develops really quite distinctive iconography and identity of its own but one that is nonetheless not unrelated, mm. not, in not out of dialogue with the others. And this is the beauty of studying late antiquity in particular, but I mean, this whole exhibition goes back two millennium, that's the whole point, isn't yes. it? The, there is, a, I think, a modern misconception that religions, as they are now defined, um, spring into being, like you said, as these fully formed, fully fledged uh, and distinctive units, but they are not. And, I love teaching late antiquity and early Christianity in particular because of this idea that actually they, they are borrowing so much that in the very early stages of Christianity it's almost impossible to differentiate, say, you know, classical dining <laughs> decoration from very early mosaics. And actually that brings us on to our artwork that we were going to talk about to begin with, which is such an incredible thing to have got hold of. It usually lives in the British Museum, doesn't it? It does. Um, the Hinton St Mary mosaic... One of the earliest known depictions of Christ. Why is it so important? So, first of all, within the British Isles, um, there's this amazing floor, um, which was discovered in the, I think it's in the 30s, uh, in um, a village in Dorset, um, from a Roman villa. And it's a classic Roman mosaic um, in, with, with the, the various aspects of the floor and so on and so forth. But it has at the centre of its main room uh, a roundel that has uh, an image of a beardless fellow who looks a bit like a Roman emperor, actually, uh -huh. of the period, but behind his head is the Cairo, the, the, the XP in Roman letters, but it's the uh, letters Chi for K, as in Christos, and Rho for the R, so the first two letters of the name of Christ in Greek. Uh, behind his head. And so clearly, whatever the initial intention, um, he is intended to mean Christ, and he's taken to mean Christ pretty soon. There are some pomegranates on either side. But the striking thing about this, apart from the fact that it is actually probably the earliest um, image of Christ north of the Alps, um, apart from this, um, in the same floor, in a continuation of the same floor, and in, an, in actually a larger roundel, is an image of Bellerophon, the Greek hero, killing the chimera, which is this strange, monstrous beast, um, uh, riding on the horse, the winged horse Pegasus, in an iconographic form that would come later to resemble, uh, or to be the ancestor of the image of St. George or St. Michael killing the dragon. Um, and. That means you have a combination, in the, in the terms that you discussed earlier, the syncretistic uh, problematic of, of an image that's clearly unambiguously um, implying Christ and an image that clearly refers to pagan mythology, although you might want to allegorize that and say this is symbolic, for example, of the conquest of evil or salvation or something that could itself map onto Christianity. Yeah. Nonetheless... Um, uh, uh, it, it, is, it is striking and it is not the way that Christian art would later develop. Well, for a start, it's on a floor. <laughs> this idea that people are actually walking over the image of Christ seems... Again, it's, it's an evolution of an art form, isn't it? The medium of, of mosaic and the tesserae will come to be apt mosaics. It will come to be the, the large-scale things we see in Ravenna and in Rome. But this is evolving out of Roman artistic practices that go back much like earlier, don't they? That 
that's true. That's certainly true. Actually, the floor thing is interesting. Only in the 680s do the Byzantines legislate in their church councils and in a council, so-called Trullo, uh, the Quinisext Council, do they legislate against um, the image of Christ on the floor. Mm. So clearly, it is quite common and arguably normal. And when they legislate against it, it is because you would despise Christ by walking on him. Um, but in this early period, no problem. Mm. And of course, if you think that Christian imagery is generated out of um, a mixture of different pagan themes, particularly mythological themes, then those they have no problem about putting on the floor. So why should there be a problem with Christianity? And I think this, this uh, you mentioned the pomegranates, this idea that in this image... The only thing really that identifies it as Christ is that Cairo. Yeah. In every other respect, it could very easily pass as a very typical image, perhaps the philosopher's guise. But the pomegranates, you know, obviously we can go back to Persephone and a descent into the underworld. And then there are these, these wonderful symbolic leaps of the imagination that we read in early Christian texts where the pomegranate is in fact the church protecting the faithful within. But actually it is taking a symbol Oh, and then imposing new meaning on it, isn't it? Yeah. It's not inventing anything new, it's yeah. adapting. Absolutely. And, of course, if you took the Cairo out of that image, nobody would ever have dreamed of imagining that it could be Christian and anybody who said so would have been thought a nutter. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt. So it is just that one mark <laughs> that makes all the difference. And, as you say, um, once you give it a Christian inflection, then all kinds of other aspects... Um, have the potential, we can't say they certainly, depends on the different viewers and communities, but have the potential for acquiring all kinds of symbolic explanation to make them Christian. Absolutely, like you mentioned, um, Pegasus, and, and there's the idea of resurrection. You could take the whole floor yes. then and impose Christian iconography, and okay. yet it remains under the radar in some ways, doesn't it? It's well, and in its period. We, we must date it, of course. It, it's period is some point in the 4th century, um, uh, so that's before, uh, after the um, Christianity, it's likely to be after Christianity has been made an official religion of the empire. It's well before Christianity becomes the exclusive religion of the empire, which is actually at the point that the Romans leave, uh, leave Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it is at a point when uh, Christianity becomes one of the options. It's not a persecuted option. But the iconography of that floor is therefore available to multiple potential interpretations. Mm. Um, so when you say under the radar, it's not just under the radar, but it is, um, uh, it's still a kind of Christianity that is not, as it were, hegemonic, not the, the religion of the governing um, authoritative majority. Um, and it is a Christianity that is capable of a kinds of fusion. Mm. what you call, I mean, kinds of syncrasis and so on, with non-Christian uh, or pagan, forms of paganism. And I think this is, again, this, this important date, just some dates for the art detective listeners, but if we think about Constantine the Great, who actually is said to have wielded the banner of the Cairo in front of his troops, Indeed, isn't he? indeed. Um, and who has a British connection because he's proclaimed emperor in, in York. Absolutely, in, and his father in, was the... Beginning of the 4th century. Yeah, his father was con consul in the West? No, his father's the emperor in the West. Emperor the emperor in, in, a, in a part of the empire that is centred in Trier in Germany, but it included Britain and a large part of Gaul, France. And his mother, Helena, was thought to have a British connection as well, wasn't she? She's the, the finder of the true cross, of course. The key thing about <laughs> Helena is that it, which I, I, mean, there's no, I think there's no doubt Helena was Christian yeah. and uh, Helena's efforts to, f to find the cross, which it may be a myth, a later myth, but nevertheless her trip to Jerusalem and the founding of the um, main great churches in Jerusalem, which goes, it's really, I mean, they're con attributed to Constantine, but it's probably Helena that sorts that out. Yeah. Um, I think Helena's crucial to the, to the narrative of Christianization of the Roman Empire. Yeah, and, and this idea, of course, that, you know, that he's declared emperor in York is a wonderful British connection. <laughs> but there's other, bit, there's other interesting British connections because one of the things that you highlight here in the exhibition as well is how relatively tolerated Christianity was in the British Isles where, uh, you know, Christianity was, a, was being persecuted in, in more central areas. It was <coughs> relatively tolerated over here at the edge, wasn't it, at the periphery of the empire? I think always the edges uh, are, have a different set of rules than the centre. Yeah. But the question of the persecution of Christianity is a really difficult one. Mm. Christians 
themselves, once they took power, were very keen on portraying themselves as former victims, and this enabled them to uh, enact um, much more brutal persecution on those that they uh, could claim were their persecutors in the past. Um, and so, however, it is as a result of Christian texts that we have to believe in Christian, in the persecution of Christians. It may be much more um, true to think of it in a different way, which is that the Roman emperors in the third course of the third century, the periods of the major persecutions, were not really opposed to Christianity, but were um, uh, attempting to call to bring about a certain kind of unity in an empire that was faltering um, by insisting on certain kinds of centralized religious practice, such as the worship of the emperor himself. Mm. And that was a line beyond which um, Christians couldn't go, unlike almost every other religion of the empire, where there's no problem about worshipping the emperor in addition to Mithras or in addition to uh, Isis or whatever. What Christi Christians could only worship, I mean, the, the whole uh, famous parable of the, of the, of the coin yes, whose head, Caesar's head, or, um, Christians really uh, couldn't do that without um, fundamental compromising of their faith, and enough were willing to die for this in ways that I think really profoundly surprised mm -hmm. and confused the Romans. Mm. Um, for that narrative of persecution to be to be possible, but it is at least like at least possible, if not likely, that um, uh, the whole myth of persecution is grossly overdone and post-eventum. Well, I think this idea of the word martyr, I, I mean, I wrote a book about the saints and open it with St. Alban and the idea of embracing martyrdom. Nowadays, yeah. this word is, is dangerous, it's loaded. And I think it was then, it was about retaliation, yes. it was about trying, uh, defining themselves as suffering and as a result, carving out something unique about Christianity, which was different, as you say, to the many, many diverse religions yes. that were tolerated within the Roman Empire. I mean, technically in Greek, martyr means witness. And so they're witness to a different kind of faith or understanding than normal in the, in the culture. Mm. But another way to look at it is that um, when a Roman is accused, falsely or rightly, what he or she does is respond with a speech, an elegant, well-defined speech that defends th their position. What Christ does, crucially in his trial, um, is basically not to say anything. And the, the, the taking of uh, whichever amendment it is in the United States, that is the, that, that refusal to speak, which is to say, I don't play the game by your rules. That and then, of course, to die for it. That model, which is the model for martyrdom, um, is one that actually the Roman Empire couldn't really cope with. Um, so that uh, famous, and, and there, there are famous debates about this, because one of the things that the that later pagans do is they say, what kind of a, of a god have you got who can't even get it up enough to respond? <laughs> yeah. To which, famously, Origen, in a wonderful, in his, uh, Origen, who's the, f the first and perhaps the greatest of the church fathers, an amazing scholar of the second century, uh, second to third century, Origen, um, in his uh, eight books of Contra Celsum, it's a great account against a pagan accuser of Christianity, um, he opens this by saying, you know, that um, I have got to write eight books to uh, um, defend our Lord, but when our Lord spoke, he didn't say anything. Yeah. It's quite a good, it's a kind of, you know, I know it's a kind of academic joke, but it's still quite a good joke. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, the first academic joke. Um, but that, that business of it being fundamental, that the truth is so blindingly obvious and true that you don't defend, that's something Romans couldn't cope with. And it is, um, I think, again, vitally important when thinking about the emergence of Christianity and this incredible artwork within that story. We very traditionally think about 2,000 years of Christianity. And I think there is a misconception that it, again, like I say, pops up and is fully formed. It is not. It is constantly evolving for the first... Well, it's still evolving, but it's in those early centuries, it is a minor sect. It is a... It is one amongst many, and 
And it doesn't define itself necessarily so clearly through the visual arts, does it? Um, as I say, it sort of stays, um, it borrows from other mediums, from other traditional established well, art forms. One part of our project actually is to make the claim that although the history of Christianity has been largely studied through texts and through the multiplicity of texts, because Christianity not only produced its own scriptures and borrowed, used the um, Jewish scriptures, but it produced this endless amount of commentary and exegesis and discussion and heresy, but all kinds of forms of response in text. But we're making the claim that that has been exaggerated because if you, for mo most actual Christians, as opposed to what you might say professional um, uh, um, uh, Christians who were literate, most Christians are not literate. Mm -hmm. What they need to tell them the stories is the visual world. And um, what they need to establish the kind of spaces uh, that could be considered sacred early churches and then later uh, proper churches, churches that have mosaics on them, churches that have sculptures and so on, is an actual visual culture that is different, that yeah. defines itself by difference. So its myths, although they, I choose the word myths carefully mm -hmm. for scripture, Christian scriptural imagery, its myths, although they draw on the, um, the same forms and they borrow, they actually, if it, in the case of sarcophagi, are carved by the same people yeah. as, as pagan uh, images. Its myths, nevertheless, are different. They don't look the same. The stories are not the same. Yeah. And so, a, a kind of identity formation is being developed in that universe, which is obviously in relation to text. It's in relation to scripture. You can't d take away scripture, but it is nonetheless non-scriptural. It's not, or at least it's nonetheless visual. And so I think that's very uh, significant. And it's narrative as well. I mean, that's what we see in the early catacomb art. That's what we see in a, well, a lot of the carved sarcophagi. telling stories, isn't it? That's interesting, and it's partial. So the Hinton floor, for example, yeah. is not a narrative yeah. image. It's just a portrait of Christ. Or if you take sarcophagi in the show, we've got two fabulous uh, pieces, early Christian sarcophagi, from the... Um, uh, from Rome um, and in a collection that has been bought by the Ashmolean uh, and has hardly them. been displayed. It's very remarkable. So one of them is a small child sarcophagus and it has absolutely what you just said, narrative images. It has the image of Peter being arrested, the image, so that's an image that is post-Christ, post the narrative of Christ, but highly relevant to the context of Rome, uh, who, where Peter is the, the, the first bishop. Um, then it has Christ entering Jerusalem, then it has a miracle, Christ um, uh, uh, multiplying the loaves, and finally, and for the dead, not a bad choice, uh, the miracle of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, Christ bringing Lazarus to, back to life. Mm. Um, so there is a narrative form, but next to it, we've got a very remarkable sarcophagus with three panels that are figured, and in the middle, um, it's a wavy, what's called stridulated panels that look, they look like, you could think of them as rain or water or waves of light, and they, the light glitters on them rather beautifully. Oh, they're absolutely beautiful, but yeah. In, but the three panels are effectively the classic model of a, of a, of a triptych. Christ in the centre with a book, uh, with a codex, and on either side, Peter and Paul with rolls, with scrolls. Mm -hmm. So Christ is differently defined, he's blessing, and the, there's no narrative there. No. That's a, a, an image of um, spiritual contemplation or religious faith, just like the culture of the icon that would develop many, many centuries later. And so that those two things, the narrative and, if you like, the iconic, sit together in a very remarkable way, right from the beginning of Christian art. It does, uh, this excites me so much, because of course there's the different ways of reading art, the Christian art and, and iconography and pulling out the different layers of meaning. But I think what's so fundamental to, to a number of the faiths that you've represented in the exhibition is if it has a book at its heart, if it is a religion of the book, as Christianity is, as Judaism is, as Islam, in those cases there are these texts underneath that inform and, and although, as you say, they're not all literate, they are aware of the stories, the, the connections, the literary connections. And beyond simply repeating those stories, there's this imaginative ability to skip onto higher levels of contemplation. So Peter and Paul as the, the new Romulus and Remus, but also uh, the, these connections of the, the 
the, the Gentiles and the Jews, they can make those imaginative leaps, can't they? Well, one of the... Let's... Uh, if I just show you another case... Yeah, let's walk through this. Here, such the, a wonderful this, exhibition. This case... Um... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which is in the, in the Jewish section. Now, religions in antiquity, um, especially in the Greco-Roman world, but actually towards the East too, they are not scriptural. They are mythological, oral. There may be some scriptures recited, for example, the Vedas and so on, far, far in, the, in, in, in India and so on. And you mentioned um, Mithras earlier as well, and there is but, possibly a lost text of Mithras. But at best, there? it's a lost text, yeah. isn't it? And it would never have been written down. No. Um, even the, the Buddhist scriptures, the sutras, and, uh, were oral. Mm. not written down. They may have been memorised in a way like, rather like the memorisation of the Iliad, but they are oral for a long time. Now, what Judaism and Christianity do is write it down. And once you have written scripture, um, and once that becomes highly significant for understanding religion, then we have a very, very interesting pattern that takes place in late antiquity, and it's a pattern that's parallel to the radical revolution, media revolution of text in the modern era, mm -hmm. where we no longer know whether we're in 20 years' time we're going to be reading books or we're going to be reading tablets or there'll be something different, um, whether reading itself is going to be... Uh, 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 not the same experience if you each time you tap a letter you get the whole Wikipedia explanation for what it is or whatever. Now that transformation of of, of media is very significant in late antiquity. So if you take this case here, we've got a, um, a two fragments from a remarkable find, the so-called Cairo Geniza, which is a, um, um, a storeroom in a synagogue in Cairo of all the old manuscripts that were falling apart. And then these were eventually brought to Cambridge and to Oxford uh, in the 19th century. Now here we have a, um, a Torah scroll. So this is the sacred scrolls. Um, it, it's late, a bit late for our period. It's into the 12th century. But the point is, it's just like the Torah scrolls that are today. And it's just like the ones that were uh, in our period. Yeah. And this roll out in a horizontal way. Absolutely. Then next to it, we've got a prayer scroll mm -hmm. um, of bits of parchment um, that have been actually attached together, and this rolls out in a, in a, in a vertical way. Um, and then next to it again, we've got a really remarkable, we've got a, an, an illuminated page, but from an Arabic book of Exodus, that's a Jewish book but written in Arabic, um, which is a codex. codex. That's a, so that's a book like our kind of books. So here are three different kinds of experimentation with 
how you transmit script, how you store script, how you read script, and that's huge. Because if you think script in antiquity is largely written on walls, it's epigraphic, it doesn't move, it's inscriptional, then this is a, a, an extraordinary transformation in the nature of religion. You see, Yash, I'm so happy that you've mentioned the digital revolution as well in relation to this, because I think we totally underestimate the importance of the development of the Codex, the book, as uh, almost like the first computer. It's, it's so important. It's and it is, it is potentially a Christian invention in as much as it's coming probably out of the tablets that Roman soldiers were using in that format. But, but the reason that the Codex is so useful for Christian typology, typology is because unlike having to roll out a scroll yeah. to find a point of reference, you can flick between the, the folios, between yes. the pages, and that allows that sort of biblical reminiscence that's so important. Well, and especially if you think of liturgy, where you say, even today in the Mass, you're going to use a bit from the Old Testament, and you're going to use a bit from the Psalms, and you're going to use a bit from the New exactly. Testament. And that means if you're going to use one book, you've got to flip you can't do it by rolling and unrolling. And so there is a real pragmatics. And it's, if you like, a kind of technology. Absolutely. Um, a sort of, it's a sort of gadget. Well, well um, even the stitching. I mean, I work a lot on the Codex yeah. Amiatinus, which is yeah, the, the largest single surviving copy of the Vulgate Bible. Just and indeed the foundation of our text. Absolutely, which it still is. The logical text, yeah. And the idea that you can stitch that number of calfskins, a yeah. thousand calfskins together, and yeah. and create the vellum, carve it so fine and so thin at this stage that it that it can just sit as one. That is technology. Well, not only that, but it's very. It's also um, massively expensive. Yes. Because the cost of cows is expensive, and funny enough, the most expensive things produced in antiquity are in fact textiles, and uh, I think that it would be a better way to think about books as textiles. They are stitched. They are bound through stitching. Um, they are um, uh, decorated, but the the whole thing is a kind of uh, a kind of um, textile. Absolutely, absolutely. Should we move through a yep. bit further? Because I know you've got some wonderful manuscripts and sculpture further on through. Now we're going through the Vishnu in India section. Yes, yeah, so here we are in, um, in in Hinduism. Now Hinduism is remarkable because it offers a different model for thinking about um, how religions differentiate. Um, Hinduism didn't exist at the point at which other major religions in India, Jainism and uh, Buddhism, came into being. There were instead multiple cults of different gods. And one of the ways that that religion, which much later we call Hinduism, um, self-created was as attempting to kind of formulate an identity against these new religions and by amalgamating its cults, not by exclusivity, but by amalgamation. So if we take this image, which is it's a very remarkable piece from the... It belongs to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, but it is uh, displayed in the Ashmolean. And it's actually it? the second Hindu piece to come into the country. So it came in the 18th century. Yeah. It's called the Hedges Vishnu. And it's a wonderful sculpture. It's from the end of our period. It's about 1,000 yeah. um, uh, AD. But on, and it's an image, a standing image of Vishnu, and he has uh, four arms and all kinds of um, implements in his hands and so on. But what he has along the sides in a kind of a very interesting framing device are tiny images of all the avatars, the, uh, the incarnations that Vishnu took, which are in fact um, ancient cults mm. that the Hindus appropriated into creating this image of Vishnu. So for example, here's the Buddha, and here is the boar incarnation, and, and so on. So um, this... This defines really a different model, an inclusivist model, of thinking about how you make religion. And then in the re rest of the room, we've got examples of these, uh, fine visual examples of these uh, different incarnations. And in particular, um, the, the focus, the very interesting focus on framing mm. the central deity. So there's a huge panel that frames. That's a piece that from, from, from a frame and so on. And, and even here in the, in, the, in the other great Ashmolean piece, which is a, 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 a great sculpture of the boar incarnation of Vishnu, where he saves the the world, who is, happens to be a beautiful maiden, from the, uh, the ocean, who is uh, imprisoning her. But the, that the image of the boar himself is 
immensely complicatedly framed in, in figures, uh, or humani humanoid figures and other figures, even in the ear and around the, around the head, and so that there's a huge complex symbolism um, around this apparent image of an animal. And it acts as a perfect counter, doesn't it, to the Christian idea of uh, distinguishing itself through an initial text, establishing itself as this particular type of religion. This and also is syncretism says, in action. And it? also Christian, Christianity is one that says we are not the Jews, although we have borrowed their scriptures. We are not the pagans. We're certainly not going to be Islam when it comes along. Christianity is... We're not going to be the heretics. We're going to chuck out those Christians yeah. we think are not sufficiently Christian. And so Christianity takes really the very, very opposite source. Absolutely. Whereas uh, if, you if you take Hinduism, well, even the Buddha, there's an image of the Buddha yeah. as a Hindu. Hindu Buddha, as it were, even the Buddha, fine, let's have, let's it. have it. And indeed, later on, um, uh, we'll find both Muhammad and Jesus included as avatars of Vishnu, although it's not clear that the followers of either of those two prophets was very keen on this pattern. <laughs> but you can, see, you, can, you can see the difference in kind of mental formulation. And the way that you've put these rooms together, it's inspired, because this That's is the counter. Kind of no, it is, it's wonderful. And then as we move through, I mean, there's some absolute hits in here. Um, some of so, my favourite pieces, I love the, the... This is the poster, isn't it, that this you've is the poster, used yes. for the, the exhibition? The footprints of the Buddha. So what you have here, this is a very interesting um, problem. Uh, when Buddhism comes into being, they choose not to represent the Buddha um, in figural form, although they uh, use, every, use all other kinds of iconography. So you can't say they're an iconic or against uh, in human imagery or animal imagery. But when it comes to the Buddha, they use either a wheel or a parasol or footprints. Mm -hmm. Now, these foot, however, these footprints are really weird <laughs> because um, they're not, um, as it were, embedded or inscribed into the slab, they emerge from the slab. So that's the wrong way around. If you look at them, the, 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 the small toes are all, as it were, on the front of the hand, but the big toe is like seeing our thumb with the nail. Yeah. So that doesn't work either. And then they're covered with um, auspicious symbols of one kind or another, many, many different kinds, these wheels um, uh, and, and various other tokens, including swastikas, um, which are uh, uh, meant to, as it were, define their uh, sacred and magical quality. But they are not like any footprints. No. So they're an they're interesting um, uh, uh, a kind of solution to a problem, but that solution um, changes because... In about the first century AD, perhaps a little bit later, um, they, we come to the development of imagery of the Buddha, whether the, uh, the, uh, in Mathura, in a city in, near Delhi, or in Gandhara, in the, in the area that is influenced by Greek culture as well as uh, Indian culture in, in Afghanistan, Pakistan. So blending again, and also very ge geographical specificity. I mean, that's one of the things that really comes through strongly, how different religions respond to different geographical Definitely. contexts. Definitely, that's right. That's right. There's, and, and indeed, yes, I mean, the, the carving of huge statues into the rock and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you've got that wonderful uh, depiction of that on the back wall. I'll just walk through a little bit more, because now we're going into the area of Islam. And, again, it's such a fascinating evolution, how Islam around well, the 7th the, century appears. The remarkable <laughs> story with Islam, really, is that uh, uh, from the moment of the Prophet's death through to for a century, so it's only in about 100 years, they conquer the world. Yeah. They, they, they get to India, they conquer the whole Persian Empire, Iran, Iraq, Syria. They uh, conquer um, uh, all of Roman North Africa and up to the uh, Mediterranean, Syria and so on, Palestine. Um, they get to Spain, they get to south of France. And what you have here is, an, is a is a extraordinary mix of cultures which have nothing in common with each other, no languages, backgrounds, histories. And so the question of how you construct an identity that you could think of as distinctively Islamic in that context becomes huge, mm -hmm. hugely complex. And uh, here we, in, in this part of the exhibition, we see a number of the different kinds of options where they're borrowing from local communities. But when it comes to, when push comes to shove, <laughs> what they do is they discover, um, using the Quranic Arabic in its calligraphic form as Qufic, this wonderful script yes. of Qufic, they discover a way in which they can uh, affirm Islam. Absolutely that is neither like the worshippers of three-dimensional, let's call them idols, idols yeah. um, in, in India, 
um, Buddhists, Hindus, whatever, nor like the worshippers of two-dimensional idols, like the Christians who mm -hmm. worship icons, in general, not three-dimensional sculptures. Yes. Um, but by contrast, Islam creates a calligraphic model of uh, which starts with Qurans, like these absolutely which wonderful, absolutely amazing Qurans. one of my favourite pieces um, in the whole exhibition, the, the blue Quran. It's absolutely beautiful, it's written dyed, in gold. It's dyed, the parchment is dyed blue to emulate the... Um, uh, purple manuscripts of the Byzantines, and then the writing is entirely it's in pure, uh, pure gold in this fabulous Cufic script. Mm. Um, and then, of course, uh, and here you have a, a one that isn't dyed gold, but it has a, a wonderful decorative frame on the gold, um, uh, the gold script. Um, but then that can move into the into into script that's used on tombs on. Um, wooden beams on any kind of crockery and pots on textiles. So the use of Qufik as a as a kind of marker of Islamic identity becomes very very rich. And onto architecture, and I think that the um, this again brings us back to the importance of text, text-based religions versus non-text-based religions. That Islam almost learns from Christianity's mistakes that you don't meddle with the original text. <laughs> No, that's you right. fix your sacred text and you repeat it and you you craft it to the point where it is absolutely the way it was fixed at the time. It's partly a defining difference yeah. um, and, a, and a deliberate choice. Um, Christianity, but in, this is it's conflict because Christianity is borrowing from a Jewish origin. And although we like to think of as the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible as Hebrew, mm -hmm. actually... Um, it was translated in the second century BC into Greek, uh -huh. the so-called Septuagint, yeah. and that Greek is the Bible that Jews used. They didn't know Hebrew in, in Egypt, in Alexandria. They used a Greek Bible. And so Christianity uses a Latin and a Greek Bible perfectly well, perfectly easily, and indeed a Syriac Bible, Arabic Bible. It, it accepts translation into multiple languages. And in a certain sense, um, Islam makes the decision not to do that because of the opponent on that side. Mm -hmm. Buddhism, and by contrast, uh, translates. It translates itself into, into Sanskrit, Pali, but then into other languages like Chinese and um, uh, uh, Tibetan. So, yeah, and again, this, this is why I think the evolution of calligraphic art out of Islam is, is so inevitable somewhat that it is the text that defines it. If you think of uh, the incredibly rich decorative culture of Islamic uh, art in the, let's say, 8th to the 10th century. Um, and then you, you, you jump to the, um, uh, the British Isles or to the, to, the, to the north of a Roman world, a world that hardly knows Islam, certainly. Um, what you have is a world that mixes um, uh, uh, local motifs and visual culture like these endless knots, the serpent knots, the yes, animal because we're looking at the, the standing stones that you've brought into the collection, a wonderful part of it. So you've got a Pictish uh, a pic standing stone. Uh, a Welsh standing stone with actually some Ogham script, right as well organ. as Latin, and um, a, a, a wonderful, the Lancaster cross, a wonderful cross from, from um, England. Um, so what you have are is, a, is, a, is actually a form of art that is local. Mm -hmm. That is the standing stone, and it goes right back, Stonehenge, and so on and so forth. Um, the, a, a decorative model, which is largely local, um, that is to say, again, these endless knots and the twirling patterns and so on that looks back into Celtic art and so forth. But at the same time, you have um, Latin script as well as runic and, and, and organ. You have um, uh, the forms of the cross, which, of course, is imported from um, uh, uh, the Mediterranean. And that, that, that mix, which is actually pretty non-figural, although it doesn't exclude figures necessarily, um, is, is, is strangely parallel, actually, with what's going on right across Eurasia. It's interesting, again, we're talking about geography, aren't we? We're talking about culturally specific artworks that grow up out in response to a religious need. But these things are fascinating in their linguistic diversity and in their decorative diversity because they're drawing on, on much older traditions, aren't they? They certainly are, and they're drawing also uh, on, um, on multiple traditions and on rich mixes within traditions. Mm -hmm. And that happens not just in these kinds of stones, but in... Um, all kinds of other artefacts, but particularly uh, one might think of books. 
Yes, in books. Well, this is, this is again, my passion area, the evolution of insular manuscripts. It's so, just incredible. So here, in, in this section, we've got um, items that come from abroad to make um, the culture of English art. Um, and these are particular interesting objects in the British Museum. Here's a, uh, um, uh, it's a sort of um, uh, bowl made of, of copper, but it yeah. was made in Byzantium and it was dug up in Kent. Yeah. And in this case, you've got a, a little bead that has the Bismala, the name of Allah, carved in it. So it was certainly from an Islamic, the Islamic world. Uh-huh. Finds its way into into France. It gets turned into this cross, a brooch with a, in a cross shape, and then it's found in an Irish bog. And then here you've got a book. This is one of the two books in the country that um, are associated with the omission of St. Augustine to um, convert the English again in the 6th century. And this comes probably in the, in the later 6th century. It's from Italy. It's an Italian book. Well, I get very excited about the magic date, 597, this idea of Augustine comes, and everyone wakes up, and suddenly they're all Christian. Yes, because they but, were all there. There were Christians there before. But <laughs> then, we, we, and also, it was just a, everybody realised Woden was wrong and Christ was right. But the important thing, <laughs> the important thing was to make them orthodox. Yeah. Um, yes. But then there are a number... So, so, for example, here we have an ivory that comes from the Carolingian court, comes from uh, uh, from France um, or, or, or Germany. And so, again, it's this mix that creates these like characteristic... Um, and whether you see it in, in metalwork or you see it in, in, um, uh, in manuscripts, uh, these characteristic forms mm. that become insular. Yeah. And on, on this side, I mean, this is one of the truly great books... Of the, um, of the, the insular tradition with a wonderful carpet page showing a cross and, um, and with text, but everything about it looks back to the traditions of um, uh, endless ornament and, and serpents and eagles and the rest of it that you find in uh, pre-Christian um, and uh, Pictish, Celtic, whatever, ornamentation. And you've got that wonderful bent cross from the Staffordshire Hall. Exactly. Very generously they lent us this mm. fabulous piece. Um, of course, it doesn't look like a cross the way it remains, but a, a great Anglo-Saxon gold cross um, from an area not very far from Litchfield and with some of its ornamentation quite similar to what goes on in the Litchfield carpet page. And I think what, again, is interesting and a theme throughout the exhibition is, is the importance of symbols, but also the importance of a symbol to be understood by the initiate. That the cross becomes such a defining symbol of Christianity. Um, you know, you had the Buddha footprints, but these these symbols that that you only know about if you have the backstory, if you understand the religious context out of which it's coming. I agree with that. Although it also does something else because it enables you to be what you are, to use the immensely rich Celtic ornament, and yet to be orthodox, to be acceptable, to be okay, because. There's a cross in there, and so the and indeed you can then subvert the cross, if you like, into that ornamental tradition. And so there's a very uh, there's an interesting dialogue there, let's say, a and, rich dialogue. And I think we were saying, weren't we, Yash, that that there is something to be said for really scrutinising the the importance of religion over the last two thousand years. It's we've mentioned the digital revolution. We're also it is a, a time where people are largely critical of religion in the West and particularly amongst intellectual circles. It's difficult to engage people with, with religion as a, as a topic. Um, but why is it so important still for, for, stu- for, for students, for scholars, for academics? Well, in part because, uh, I mean, many of the uh, problems facing the world today are not unrelated to religion. And if you reject or run away from religion, if you run away from the histories... Uh, of our religions, then you're in a very, very poor position with which to deal with uh, uh, the problems that may emerge. And also, uh, the fact is that the doctrines of secularism, one way or another, are not very helpful in understanding um, the difficulties with which we deal. Um, So at the very least, even if one isn't um, committed in in faith terms, a kind of respectful uh, understanding and sense of both what religions are and of how they have come to be and actually the immense complexity and richness um, of borrowing, of appropriation, of influence that has that makes anyone relig- religion what it is, let alone the fact that they exist in um, dialogue, 
those things we need to know, we need to understand, and it is at our peril that we don't. That's, as culturally, that's not just intellectually or academically. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And this exhibition, that's what excites me so much because it is about understanding the world through the different belief systems that have come to frame it over 2,000 years. It's a huge brief. <laughs> well, the, that's right, although, of course, we focused particularly on the first 1,000 within the Christian uh, era. Um, but... Uh, as you say, those are the origins of what goes later. And in fact, the introductory part of the exhibition attempts to show as a few examples from later on, yeah. just to sort of pin it down. It is extraordinary. I love this exhibition. Oh, How long is you. it running for? It's here till the 18th of February in the Ashmolean Museum. Um, and so it's closed on Mondays, but otherwise do come. Yes. It, I can't recommend it enough, Art Detective listeners. It's amazing. Yash, it is an honour, as I said at the beginning, to spend time with you, to talk with you, and to enjoy these artworks with your immense knowledge next no. to me. An absolute treasure. Thank it's you. It's a delight. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.